0: Out of the infinite choices you have, I'm honored you've decided to press play. With gratitude and humility, welcome to the Top Brand Builders. Ladies and gentlemen, we got a special guest on the podcast today. Robbie Crabtree, ex-trial lawyer, now performative speaking coach. And actually, are you an ex-trial or are you still practicing law? I, I, I still practice a little bit of law these days. Nice. Right on. Robbie, thanks for coming on the show. And um, just kind of lay the groundwork for what that means as far as a, a trial lawyer and a performative speaking coach.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. Really excited for, for the conversation. The, the interesting thing is being a trial lawyer is essentially being a competitive storyteller. Like this, It's literally what it comes down to. You tell the best story, you win. You paint the best picture, you win. And learning that skill set over my career, so I spent seven years really trying, trying those cases, I ended up with 102 jury trials uh, as, as of this day. So I'm sure it'll expand in the future as I take a few here and there. But you just really developed the skill set of game theory and human psychology and persuasion and obviously public speaking and how to do these things really, really well. And it led to this idea of, oh, I can teach other people this stuff. Like I can be a speaker myself outside of that. So like I do speaking engagements as well, delivering stories of my time in child abuse unit, trying those cases, what I've learned from those and and how other people can apply. Certain things that I learned as a trial lawyer, but I also can teach people how to be great speakers. Because the principles I learned were in like the highest stakes situations, but it translates to anything. Whether you're a founder fundraising, whether you just wanna be a great speaker, whether you wanna get up and give a keynote address, it all applies. So I I moved into this space of performative speaking, which is my philosophy when it comes to speaking, and started teaching and coaching and consulting in this line of work with people who are just trying to become great speakers to amplify their their skills and their vision and be better at work and be better in life and just see what opportunities open up. So that's kind of the the transition that I've made over the past year, two years uh, has been a pretty hard pivot.
0: Okay. So what would be the first thing that somebody should work on what's the fundamental thing that um we can lay to build upon
1: so i mean honestly the first thing that you need to to develop as a speaker is just sounding more polished because if you can have the best strategy in the world but if you don't sound like a a great speaker it's not going to go anywhere so if you're just filled with tons of filler words and you're rambling and you speak way too fast and nobody can even understand what you have to say, or you speak way too slowly or you're monotone, no one, no one's going to care. Like you're just going to have zero buy-in. So the first thing we've got to figure out is how to make you sound like a great speaker. And a lot of that is just cutting out some of those easy things. And then we build on top of that. So like, there's kind of this distinction. First, we make you sound like a good speaker, not a great speaker, but a good speaker. Then we work on giving you the strategy and the techniques and the frameworks to start thinking through so you can actually become a great speaker. And then that last piece is we actually elevate you from sounding like a good speaker to sounding like a great speaker. And there is a real difference. It's pretty easy to get somebody to become a good speaker relatively quickly. Getting people to great speaker is, for some people will be impossible. Like I'll be completely honest, like some people just aren't going to be that. But other people, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to get them there. I mean, for instance, like I've been doing this for 10 years now through law school and through being a trial lawyer and all this work, it took a long time to get to this point. It didn't develop overnight. And so that's one thing to keep in mind as well. So it's kind of that three-part process.
0: So I want to talk a little bit and hear some stories about you in the, in the courtroom because there's so many lawyers out there, but trial lawyer, that's that's a whole different ballgame. And um, as far as when you're in there and whether performing or whatever the adjective you want to use, how much of it, like, how do you, how do you prepare from a, um, when you're presenting or trying to win over the jury, how do you think about that? Are you trying to hit their emotional nerves? Are you trying to be clinical in the sense that just lay out the facts? What's the balance between those two approaches?
1: Yeah. You're never going to win a case if you just lay out the facts. That that is a, a recipe for disaster. In fact, in my eighth trial ever, that's exactly what I was doing at that time, thinking that's how you were trial lawyers. You just put facts out there and you put the evidence and then people would do the right thing. And I lost that case. The jury came back not guilty. And then I heard them talking to the defendant out in the hallway and they said a few things that really stood out to me. So they were talking to him and they go, we know you were guilty. You know you were guilty, but we felt that you really meant it when you told us you were sorry and that you realized you had made a mistake. And that's why we gave you another chance. So in that moment, they told me a few things. I had proven my case, like they agreed with me, but they didn't care. Like it didn't move them to action because they felt something with the defendant. And that moment was really where I I dialed in on this idea of emotion moves people. That's actually what inspires action. Essentially, what we have to do as a speaker is inspire that action with emotion, and give reason and logic to help people basically rationalize the decision that they make because they won't rationalize that decision if they don't have those pieces. So you have to have both when you're delivering it. And that really did change the way that I approached being a trial lawyer. And in the last case I tried, in fact, I was a defense attorney and I was trying this case, it was a murder. And I believe that my client had acted in self-defense. Now there were some some real problem facts in the case for, for me, in terms of the the shooting was actually on video. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, my client had said some really terrible things to his brother as his brother is dying. And he had left out some facts in his original statement that he had given to the police, like right after the shooting. And this is why I say it's so important to understand human psychology and understand these other areas. Because by knowing this stuff, I understood what he was going through in that moment. So like he had gone fully into fight or flight mode where he felt like he did have to attack. And in order to do that, your your adrenaline kicks in and you become a different person, right? We've all heard that, like the the parent who lifts a car off their child or something, right? They would never be able to do that normally, but in that moment they can. And the same thing had happened to my client here. And so he said these really terrible things because that was his way of amping himself up to actually be able to fight in the moment that he felt like he was in fear of his own life. And so by knowing that and knowing these things too, when it came to the interview right after, like this was a traumatic memory, so his brain stored it differently. So I knew how this worked. So I knew when he was recalling pieces, he wasn't recalling the full story because it doesn't get stored chronologically. Again, this goes back to when I was actually a prosecutor and working in the child abuse unit. You spend a ton of time learning this stuff with psychologists and experts in their field because the way traumatic memories are stored are incredibly different and especially with children. So you have to learn all this brain psychology that goes into it. But to go back to the story, like he had killed his brother and it was on video and he had said a bunch of bad things. If you're in Texas, like that pretty much means you're going to prison and probably going to prison for a long time. But I knew I had to connect emotionally to my audience. And so that's and my audience be my jury. Right. And so the entire trial, I was prepping and prepping and prepping. I spent probably six months really prepping this trial, getting ready for it. And then I delivered my closing argument on it which essentially drew into this idea of a scene from the West Wing. And I used the, the theme and my hook was vengeance is not justice. And I delivered everything in a very slow and controlled and very intimate and big pauses and really trying to create a bunch of weight with my words. I wanted them to feel the weight was literally on them. Even though my client had killed his brother, Like I wanted them to feel that just because somebody had died doesn't mean that sending somebody to prison is justice. Like that's vengeance. There's a difference. And so I went through this closing argument and ended up, I had a number of jurors actually start crying in that closing argument. And I went back, sat down and my boss was actually at the table with me at the time, because at that point I was working at a firm and he just turns and he goes, that was the best clothes I've ever seen. And it was because like I created this huge emotional impact in that room because that's the only way the jury was going to do what I wanted to. Like, if I just relied on facts and evidence, they were going to be like, he killed a guy. Like we're sending him to prison. But if I connected emotionally and showed them the story of my client as a person and really moved them, I knew I had a chance. And ultimately that jury deliberated for about five hours and came back and found him not guilty on that murder charge. And my client went home and continued to raise his kid and be with his, his fiance and do all the right things. And so in that moment, that's where I was like, you know, thank goodness, trial eight when I failed miserably at really low stakes happened to me because that led to the progression where I could actually achieve this result in jury trial 102 that saved a man's life and saved his family's life as a result because he was the caretaker for all of his family too.
0: So what emotion were you targeting? What were you trying to strike with the jury? Was it anything specific?
1: So in that moment, I was essentially trying to create this, this idea, the emotion that I would say is vengeance is not justice. And that doesn't sound like an emotion, but it is. So emotions Mm. are not purely one word. I think that's the mistake people make is thinking emotion means happy, sad. No, no. Emotions can mean the way that I feel. And that can be nuanced, right? I can Mm. feel that vengeance is not justice. That is an emotion that I am feeling. I'm tied to that, right? Like the the idea of like, let's say Barack Obama's change we can believe in. That's an emotion. Like you feel that anything that you feel becomes an emotion. So I know if I create this sense of vengeance is not justice as an emotion, it will move people to do what I want. And so how do you do that though? Again, you create that emotion by speaking very slowly, by taking big pauses, by being very close and intimate to the people I'm speaking to. And like essentially what you're trying to do is create chills, On every person who's hearing you speak, you want them to feel that. You want it to come to life, and you want to see them crying. Hopefully, if you can, like that's a good sign. And so when I did that, you can clearly see that that emotion has sunk in. That they feel the weight of this moment on them, where it's this idea of yes, somebody died, but that doesn't mean justice is sending another person away. So like it's it's much more nuanced, and this is why I'm saying like. It takes time to develop this. Essentially what you become is, is able to recognize patterns and pattern recognition is one of these traits that most people don't have because they don't put themselves in the trenches enough to figure these things out. And so like, when I say I've tried 102 jury trials, that puts me in like the top 1% of 1% of trial lawyers when it comes to trial. So I've seen so many things that I can respond very quickly and figure out what do I need to do in this moment to react and move my audience in the way that I'm trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, the way you describe that, it sounds very similar to an actor.
1: there's a there's a lot of a lot of truth to that. You are putting on a performance, you're stepping into a a role and trying to deliver. And in fact, the interesting thing as you bring that up is the place that I got my inspiration from was actually a scene in the West Wing. And okay, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that. And it was take take the Sabbath day where they're talking about capital punishment. And if you watch the scene where Toby, Toby Ziegler is talking to his rabbi. There's this singer up on the stage, it's a female singer singing this like very melancholy type song. It's very dark in the synagogue. They're having this very intimate conversation, just the two of them. It's very slow, it's very quiet, lots of pauses. And so I took all of that because I was like, I know how that makes me feel. Mm. And again, that makes, and in that, that the way that I came up with Vengeance Is Not Justice is in that scene, they were actually saying, vengeance is not Jewish. And I mm. changed it to justice. And so I really was recreating that scene in my own court using my own facts to try to recreate that feeling for my audience even though they weren't in that scene. If I could do that, I knew I had a chance, and in fact it worked. Wow.
2: Dude,
0: that's brilliant. It reminds me of Austin Kleon's book Steal Like an Artist. You just you see something that works, you <laughs> take it and reapply it in a different context and why why uh try to reinvent the wheel. That's really that's really incredible. So is that so to kind of go from there the 102nd jury trial because I was reading your website last night I know a little bit but I'd like for you to explain a little bit the transformation that's taken place over this last say 16 months because it seems like you've been on this this incredible journey so you've developed all this experience and talent and skills as far as the jury goes, and now you're or a trial lawyer and being a lawyer. Now you're parlaying that into speaking. How did this? Can you can you kind of fill in some of the um in between?
1: Yeah. So there's a number of things that that played out. Right. COVID hit, which really shut down courts. So like there was just free time that I had because courts weren't open. So no more trial. That obviously plays a role, <laughs> but. I started realizing, so I also teach persuasive speaking and coach the National Mock Trial Team at SMU Law School for the last four years now. And I realized in that work that I was, was having a, a real kind of ability at translating the things that I did to other people. And it was resonating with them. Where like, they were sweeping all the awards. They were winning tournaments and just really good things were happening to my students. But every year when I teach persuasive speaking, I can only take about 15 students inside of there. And we would like, I would have 100, 150 people trying to take it. So it told me that there's a market for it. Mm. And when COVID hit, I got online and found people like Jack Butcher, David Prell, people of that nature. And I was like, oh, the market isn't just lawyers, it's actually other people too. And so that's when I started expanding it out to, oh, I can take all these lessons. And I also came across like Chris Voss, who was the FBI hostage negotiator who's moved into like more of this world about negotiations in general. I was like, Oh, like that's another like blueprint that I can kind of follow and just kind of use my experience. Me as a former prosecutor, child abuse prosecutor, like in the crimes against children, special victims unit, whatever you want to call it, trying murders and capital murders and all that sort of stuff. And then doing it on the defense side. I was like, Oh yeah, I I can do this. So I quickly realized there was an opportunity. And then I started having people come to me as well. So I had founders, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, uh, politicians coming to me for speech writing, for coaching, for helping them through these ideas. <laughs> and that's really what started to, to basically send me the signal, right? Of like, hey, there's something here. People want more of what I had to offer than just like me being a lawyer, me being a trial lawyer. And in fact, the trial lawyer thing is what resonated with them. And then they would meet me and we'd talk and go through all this. And, and it just kind of continued to snowball effect essentially. And so I created a course kind of in line with what David Perel did. In the course of that, I also started working with a bunch of, of people at companies, like all your big tech companies, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebook, Reddits, like all of these people were, were clients coming to me to work. And I was like, oh, there, there's definitely a signal here in the tech world, especially. How'd, you,
0: how'd they find out about you?
1: So they, they, mostly people found out about me through Twitter at that point or through referrals where somebody knew me and, and talked to them about me. And then they would reach out to me and say, hey, I've got this guy. I think you should meet. And then we'd start talking. Mm. So those were really the two ways that it came about. I then created the course, ran the course. Again, the consulting and coaching practice continued to build and build and build. And then in December, on deck acquired the course. Now I'm in on deck. I also still do a lot of the coaching and consulting. I give, mm. you know, like I give paid speaking engagements. I coach other people on keynotes. So like it's just been like this really interesting world. And at the same time, I'm still working on a couple big, very big civil rights violation cases as a trial lawyer where people were either seriously harmed or killed as a result of like their race, their gender, or their socioeconomic uh, factors.
0: Mm. Wow. Dude, you got a, you got a full plate, man.
1: Uh, it's all fun stuff. It's all fun yeah. stuff. Yeah.
0: I can tell you, you're, you got good energy. You got, it seems like it's, um, it gives you energy. It doesn't, it doesn't take it. Um. Something you mentioned a couple of times now about being you know, involved with the child abuse cases and, and then just these murder cases as well. How do you compartmentalize? Like, How does this not affect your personal wellness?
1: And that's the that's, that's tough one. That's in fact why I kind of left that world behind in a lot of ways and stopped doing some of that work. And it's why the speaking work is so, so nice for me because essentially being a trial lawyer is all about minimizing risk And the work I do as like a coach consultant and and a speaker is maximizing rewards, which is a very nice way to think about it instead. It's much more enjoyable from my perspective. But what you essentially have to do when you're in that world is I think about a little bit like Harry Potter where, and this doesn't mean I'm Voldemort, but I'm going to use the analogy because it makes sense in the way he would essentially pull parts of his soul and put them into objects, right? And, And that way other parts of him could stay alive, even if that part was killed. I essentially had to take like a part of me and put it into like something else when it came to these cases, because they were so incredibly difficult to work through. Like the things I've seen and heard and experienced in my work, like most people would never believe that this world even exists. I mean, like true, true evil has, has been in my, my world. I've spoken to it. I have heard it. I have seen it. I've prosecuted. It, have, I've done it all. <clears throat> and if you don't set it apart, it will destroy you. Now, the problem is if you stay in that space too long, it becomes very challenging to just remove a piece of yourself. And then you essentially have two choices. You either desensitize yourself to the, the degree that you no longer see any defendant or any person involved in the system as a person. You just see them as assets and liabilities. Or you let it destroy you, where your entire life is completely different, where you see evil around every corner. For me, neither of those situations was something I wanted. And that's ultimately when I left the DA's office. I, I mean, I remember I left, I told him I was leaving and all my bosses like to the very top, like the, the district attorney himself was like, like why? Like, don't, like you're on the fast track. Like we are putting, like you are on the leadership trajectory in, in record time. I said, I, I understand that. Like I, I knew that they were, that they were putting me in place for that. But I said, I can't do it. I can't stick around anymore. Like it's, I'm going to have to make this choice that I'm not comfortable with. And and like all of them have been incredible people, like still support me to this day, have nothing but good things to say about all of them. And and I don't think that they've necessarily had to make that choice. Maybe they are a different type of person. But for me, that was the two choices I was facing and I I wasn't going to do either of them. So ultimately that is why I left because like you said, it just, it never leaves you. Like I think about the cases to this day. I think about the people, the victims, all those sort of things, like it will never leave me. And I see the world differently because of it. And so I I just couldn't stay in that world because it would have destroyed me. You
0: know, when you speak of evil or just, I'm thinking evil or just human emotion in general, human nature, is there any patterns that you've picked up on that, that maybe people that haven't had your experience
1: could benefit from knowing? I mean, patterns from, from that sort of stuff is, this is one of the reasons why I tell people as much as I do is like, you have a voice and you should use it Mm. because what happens the most that you see is the way most of these things continue to, to happen is people don't speak out. It's one of like the main tools of an oppressor, whether that is an oppressor for socioeconomic reasons, for political reasons, but even just in the instance that I dealt with when it came to victims of crime, most of the time they stayed quiet because they were in fear that if they spoke out, somebody wouldn't believe them or somebody would retaliate and hurt them. And you learn that. And that's why I'm always this this believer in pushing this idea of use your voice. You have one, you should share it. You should share your story. You should be out there. Now, that doesn't mean if you've been a victim of some sort of crime that is easy to tell that story, right? Like there's this idea of the process of disclosure when it comes to especially sexual abuse, especially with children, where it can take years, even decades. I mean, I worked one case where he didn't actually come forward until 18 years later. And it was only because he had a younger brother that, The defendant had started to take an interest in that he was like, I can't let this happen again. And so you start seeing those sort of patterns where this idea of silencing the victims is a real tool of somebody who's in a position of power. And so the more that we can encourage people to own their voice, own their their vision, their ideas and their story and share it with people, the better off they'll be. So I think that was one of the big pieces I took and why I always continue to push people like you have a voice, share it.
0: Kind of a big question, but when it's all said and done, what are what do you hope that people, when they think of Robbie Crabtree, what's the story that they, that you want people to remember or know?
1: Yeah, I think that story is still being written in all honesty. I I think that, you know, I just, I just turned 34. So I think there's so many years still left to, to develop that story that I'm sure it'll change over time. I think right now, what I, what I want is to be known for someone who helps people amplify their voice
2: and achieve their dreams while achieving my own
1: that, like I don't sacrifice my own ambition and goals for other people's, but my own ambitions and goals actually work in symbiosis with other people's ambition and goals. And along those lines, I want to be known as somebody who is both like very compassionate and caring, but also somebody who is real and understands like we live in the real world and and everything isn't flowers and rainbows and, and all that sort of stuff. And that I use my ability to speak and move people and communicate in a way that has some impact on the world, right? Sends some ripples out, like throwing that rock into the, the, the lake and just seeing where those ripples go. At this point, that's, that's what I, I want the story to be. Robbie did a thing and he didn't realize how far it was going to stretch. But here are all of the connections that we can make
2: into the impact that he had when you talk
0: about um you know coaching these people and, and helping develop speaking is is it the number 1 or number 2 fear in the world uh, i i don't know whatever it's it's up there how do you deliver critical feedback while some like somebody's so self-conscious what have you learned as your time being a coach um about how to you know be compassionate, but also give objective feedback and actually give improvement?
1: So the first thing to notice, like to note is that everyone is different. So you have to be aware of that and give people feedback in different ways. There's no one size fits all. Once you understand that, then you start figuring out what's going to resonate with them. So a simple way to start giving some feedback is to ask the person themselves, how did you feel? What do you think you did well? What did you think that you could improve on? And you open up this discussion with them doing kind of their own internal feedback. And then it's very easy to play into that where they say something you're like, Yeah, you're right. You could have done this a little bit stronger and it would have made it more clear. And here's how I would think about it as you move forward. Right. So it's not just like they deliver and then like I just give feedback right off right out of the gate. It's very much like, hey, how do you feel? What did you think you did well? What went wrong? Like, give me, give me kind of your thoughts. And from there I can build on top of that because now it feels like a safe discussion instead of me attacking. Let's see where to go from here,
0: man. That's, uh, I feel like we've already covered quite a bit. <laughs> oh, here's one other question I had Um, that I'm really curious. You being a younger younger guy, um, being in the courtroom, was there some sort of chip on your shoulder or some kind of perceptions that you had to overcome from say the jury or
2: the judge?
1: I mean, the only chip that I had on my shoulder was I wanted to be the best like 100%. When I walked into to the Dallas DA's office to get a role there. So I spent my first 2 years in Denton County, which is county north. It's not quite as large as Dallas. Dallas is like the main hub and is is really a a known trial like DA's office in in the nation and they give people opportunities very early if you demonstrate that you have the ability. And so mm-hmm. I remember I was two years in and I, I applied to go work in Dallas and I went into the interview and the interview was the DA, the first assistant and the number two. And so the office has something like three, three 400 attorneys in it. And like, here are the one, two, and three interviewing me. Wow. And I'm at that point, I'm 26, 27, something like that, two years in. I walk in and they finally, you know, we're going through the interview and it's fine, it's fine. Everything's like rolling, like whatever, I've, I've got this. And then they asked me the question like, why do you want to work here? Like, why are you leaving your other job? Why do you want to work here? And I told him, said, I want to try the biggest, most serious, most high profile cases that there are. And that's
2: right here in Dallas. And that was, the,
1: that, was, that was the end of the interview. It was, thank you so much, we appreciate you coming. We'll let you know. And so I drove home, I ended up getting a call. About an hour later, and they said we want you to come work for us. So I said, great, and took, took the job. The number two or the number three that was in there, right? So the second assistant ended up being like my mentor and, and boss for most of my time inside of that office. And it was like two years into to my time in that office where he came to me and he goes, you know, when I decided to hire you, I said, no, like, what, what, what was it? He goes, it's when you said this answer. And he, he repeated that answer back to me. Because he goes, that was exactly what I was looking for. I needed somebody who was like me. I needed somebody who thought the same way I did and wanted to like replace me someday. And and that was really what I what I felt the entire time is I wanted to replace everybody, not in a in a mean spirited way, but I wanted to be so good that they couldn't prevent me from rising. Because I knew the stakes that I was playing with in there. Like I knew the the weight of that role that I was embracing as a prosecutor at that time. Like your sense of power is real. Like you are, it is not a game. Like you are sending people to prison. You are dealing with people who have lost loved ones who will never be the same. And like, you have to weigh both those sides equally. Like you have to remember, like, I can't just think about the, the victim and their family because like, this is also a person, like the defendant is a person too. And like, I'm saying they should go to prison for 50, 60, the rest of their life. And so I was very aware of that weight. And that's why I also wanted to be the best because I needed to be able to know when to do the right thing. And by building this credibility in that space, essentially what it allowed me to do is I didn't have to get approval for things I wanted to do. Like I dismissed cases more often than pretty much anybody else in that office because I was like, "This, it's wrong. Like it's not right, we need to let it go. And I had no problem telling my bosses exactly why I did that. And they backed me up every single time. But it was because I had demonstrated that I had the judgment, that I had this drive, that I had this ambition, that I was working towards this idea of greatness. And they saw the results I was getting in the case that I said were worth it, where I said, this should go to trial. This person should go to prison because they hurt somebody, they did something terrible and they're a danger to society. And so like that chip was always on me of like, be the best. Don't ever let anybody get in my way and stop me because this, this role is too important. The role of a prosecutor is too important. And the same when I went out and became a defense attorney and then got into civil rights law. It's too important. People are are trusting me with their lives and to fix things that have gone horribly, horribly wrong for them. So if you aren't thinking I want to be the best, like what the hell are you doing in that role? Like it's not a role for someone who's lazy and just wants to coast by. It is a role for somebody who wants to be the best and do the right thing every single time. And so for me, that was a chip I had because I understood the weight of that position.
0: You didn't have time to think. Am I too young? Or uh, what are these other people thinking? You're just, you know, full steam ahead. I like that, dude. That's sick. Um, was there ever a moment where you felt in over your head? You're like, holy shit! I, like, you're just kind of drawn blanks. You're in the middle of the courtroom, and it's like they're looking to you, and I don't know what to do.
2: <laughs> I think you feel like that in every case. Is
1: is is the truth? No matter how much you prepare, you always feel underwater again the stakes are so high basically the time that I moved into felony which is all your serious cases like I didn't handle a case where it was anything less than like 20 years in prison basically on the line and so those cases I mean they're they're just incredibly weighty. I mean the, the literally the first case I tried that was a felony case So, like th- here's the difference misdemeanor They can only go to jail for one year. And jail is different. That's at the county level. Prison is state. The first case I went into, the minimum range of punishment for the case was 25 years. I went from trying people who were mostly getting probation on misdemeanors to the minimum is 25 years. That was trial number one. Within a month of being in felony, I was leading that case and trying it. And it was against a man who was victimizing elderly women. He was basically following them from grocery stores and then robbing them when they got into their garages and like beating them to steal their stuff. (laughs) So I have like these two 83 year old women who are trusting me to basically get them them justice. And like, you want to talk about feeling over my head and it only gets worse because at that point (laughs) it's trial number one. And the, the judge is reading these quick instructions before we go into opening statement in front of the jury. And the first assistant walks into the courtroom and just walks straight up next to me and sits down in the chair directly next to me. He was like, he's a colonel in the Marines. He's a longtime judge. He's been a U.S. attorney, like incredibly powerful in the Dallas legal community. And he decides to sit down as I'm about to give my first felony opening statement. Like, I mean, I felt so over my head. And that continued on for the rest of my career, because when you're trying cases of of child abuse, you always feel over your head. like. The, the child is, is counting on you. Most of the time, their family is against them. Like that's the thing people don't realize is very rarely do they actually have support from their family. It's almost always like them against the family because the family wants to keep it inside of the family. They don't want that stigma attached to them. They want to protect their loved one. They don't want their loved one to get deported. They think their child is, you know, deserved it or something like it's horrendous. And this is why I'm saying like you, you just, it changes the way that you see the world, but always felt overwhelmed because I'm trying to be that one person that that child can count on. But here's what you do. You just act like you've been there a thousand times because you have been, you've prepared for this, you've, you've studied and you've made sure that you are in the position to succeed for those people. And if they see that you have confidence, they will have confidence too. And that's your role as a trial lawyer is to project confidence to your jury, to the judge, to the opposing counsel, but also to the victim and all of your witnesses that you're working in So that they feel, oh, this is a safe space for me to come in because Robbie's got this.
0: Wow. Yeah, dude, I can't imagine that type of pressure. What have you learned about confidence? That how how have you? Because confidence is something that keeps popping up in my life. That just like it it helps with everything, and I get how it kind of it compounds on each other. But I mean, how do you how do you build your confidence or strengthen it?
1: I think you you build it just by putting in the reps and like preparing and researching and doing all the things that you need to, right? I mean, one of the first things that I did as a prosecutor is there's like a a giant code book, and the first thing I did is I took that code book and I just would read it Hmm. because I knew if I knew the law, like that puts me ahead of most people who don't ever study this sort of stuff. So like, you need to know the rules, you need to understand all the things that that your job requires. So like the first the first way to grow in confidence is to just actually know what the hell you're talking about. And it sounds crazy, but like so many people just skip that step. And essentially, if you skip that step and you appear confident, you're actually just cocky because you don't have anything to back it up. You've got to have the expertise and the knowledge and the skills to back up that confidence. Otherwise, it's just cockiness because there's nothing nothing behind it. So you think you know what you're doing, but you really don't. And, and that is actually one of the things that drives me crazy in the speaking space is so many people teaching speaking don't have anything to back it up. They learned how to tell stories and now they teach other people how to tell stories. And I'm like, that's not, that's not real stakes. That's not real experience. That's not real knowledge. Somebody taught you something and now you're teaching the same thing. It's just a pyramid scheme over and over again. And that's why I say like that is cockiness to me. Confidence is like you can walk into any situation and deliver. As a speaker, you should be able to do that because you have built the tools and the knowledge base to, to deliver. And so for me, confidence is one of those things you build by putting in reps, by putting in practice and moving into higher and higher situations, putting yourself into real stakes, losing, getting punched in the mouth. Like Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the, in the face. You need to get punched in the face, like you need to get hurt. If you don't ever get hurt, you're not, you're not really developing confidence because you've got to learn how to pick yourself back up off the mat. And continue to press on. And I think that that's a part of the confidence building too. Is like that actual like you've failed, you've tried things and it went wrong, and you figured out, oh, I can learn from this and I can move on and I can get better. And now you have more confidence because you put in the work too. And sometimes getting punched in the face like that forces you to do that foundational work that maybe you weren't doing before. And so that that's how you like that's how I think about developing confidence. And it's just one of those things, like you said, you've got to have it. Like when you step into a room and deliver, you've got to have confidence because it just shines through. That is literally how you create credibility in your audience. That confidence shines at that. And if we're thinking about charisma, which is a, an extension of confidence, again, if we want to draw people towards us and have that magnetic personality, confidence is the way that we do that. We walk into a room and we act like we own it. Not in a pretentious way, but like in a very, we are self-assured and then we invite people into that like warmth and that presence that we have and carry on these conversations. That's how you develop charisma as well. So it's all
2: kind of linked together. I got
0: two, two more topics. I just want to quickly cover and then wrap things up. Sure. One is you had mentioned about that sense of power and how, you know, it's real. You you have the ability, if you speak convincingly to put this guy away for 25, 50 life, whatever. Not many people have ever experienced or ever will experience that type of power, and why I'm interested in it is just because you look at government these days, left or right, like it's all about power, man. And and there's that famous quote about absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, what what are your takeaways from power? Is it a dangerous drug? What what have you learned about
1: wielding such power? It is very dangerous. And I wrote about this actually recently in, in some ways. And I wrote about it in the context of like losing my dog who, who I had had for 10 years and passed away uh, a few months ago now. <clears throat> and it's this idea of like when a, a Roman emperor would come back from a, a victorious kind of conquest, right? They would have a triumph, but there was a, a slave behind them that would constantly be saying in their ear, remember you are mortal, remember you are mortal. And it was just repeat. And for me, that's always kind of stuck in my head
2: of like, yes, power is a very
1: addictive drug, but always remember that I'm mortal. And, and that idea has always made it where like, I don't try to get where like my head gets too big and I can't see anything else. And when I was talking about like desensitizing, that was part of the reason why I said I couldn't stick around <clears throat> because I could see that power potentially becoming a tool that desensitizes me. And then I forget that these are real people and real stakes and we are all mortal and we need to be aware of that. So when I was writing this piece recently, as like the on-deck acquisition went through and I was thinking to myself, like I've done it, like I've, I've moved into this new space. Like I, by all accounts, like I think I'm the first cohort-based course to be acquired by anybody like in this space, which is absolutely mind blowing. (laughs) And it'll been easy to get like caught up in that power of like, look at me, I'm so big and bad and all this sort of stuff. And in that same moment when that went through, like I was days away from losing my dog and like, I knew she was, she was going away and it was this reminder to me, like even when things are going great for me and this power seems to be growing, I'm losing a part of me that's so close to me and to remember that life is fleeting and, and not to get too caught up in these power games.
0: So how would somebody say there's corrupt power? How would you attack corrupt power?
2: Oh man, that's, that's really what, challenging.
0: Or what, what do you think a weakness of power is somebody that's, you know, super powerful. What, what is their weakness? Is there, and if it's too difficult a question,
1: I'm just curious, but yeah, we can move on. I mean the ones who play it really well, just understand how to keep it. Now, some people who, who aren't as good at the power games will lose their, their ability to see their weaknesses. They think that the power protects them. And in fact, then they become blind to certain <clears throat> certain holes. Again, if we think about it, it's a silly example on this, but it'll work. In Star Wars, the Death Star had that little hole that when Luke shot, you know, made the shot into it, it blew up the entire Death Star because they, they forgot that nobody, like that there was a small weakness, but there's no way a small thing could take that out. <clears throat> that can happen, right? With people who aren't aware of those, those sort of things in power. But there are certain players who are in the game who just 100% understand how to how to run it, and very very challenging to to over overcome those those sort of dynamics. So I, it just kind of depends, in all honesty.
0: Okay, and the final topic I'm just serious, very curious about, and being a lawyer, feels like you have an expertise in it. Is asking better questions, you get better answers. I just want to know from your kind of perspective, how do you think about questions, whether in a trial, you know, in the courtroom, that environment, or just in general, how do you craft questions that help you get the answers or
1: information that you want? So there's two different ways to think about this. I've got to figure out which one I'm trying to achieve. Am I, am I just trying to gather information and I don't really care what the like I don't have something I'm trying to get to, I'm gonna ask different questions. And if I know I'm trying to ask questions to get to a specific answer, to get to a specific end goal. So if I'm just trying to get information, I'm gonna be much more open-ended. I'm gonna make it feel very safe, very open. Like I'm really just encouraging your opinions and thoughts because I'm just really trying to have this conversation and see what you have to think. When it comes to, I have a specific goal in mind, that's gonna be very different. That's where I'm gonna start looping answers in to the questions that I use to drive the conversation in a way that doesn't feel like it's being driven by me. It's where I'm gonna do things where I'm doing a lot of like tell me mores and, and again, looping back, pulling pieces where I'm like, hey, you said this recently, like can you tell me more about that? Because I know that that's gonna guide them down the path that I wanna take them and then I'm gonna build off of that where all of a sudden we get to the point that I want to get to and it, the other person feels like they've been in control of the conversation the entire time. This is what I call tactical, tactical conversations where you have an end goal. So like when I left my last boss, I had one of these where I was having a tactical conversation where I wanted to leave on good terms. But like everyone, everyone who knew this guy was like, there's no way it's ever going to happen. He's going to like burn it down. He's going to hate you, all this sort of stuff. And so I had a plan of attack. And when I delivered that, it ended up incredibly well. Like he wanted me to to consult for him. He offered me like free office space, all sorts of things when I was leaving because I did it in a, a very deliberate and intentional way. So... Can you, for the information, can you
0: give us a, a sense of what, what you did? Were you asking questions or you just strategically delivered it?
1: So a bit of both, a bit of both. Um, and I had actually been laying the groundwork ahead of time for this. So I had been laying the groundwork for weeks when I was leaving. And a lot of that was asking those questions that started to put the seed in his mind. So when, when I delivered that I was leaving, it all kind of made sense to him. And so I've been basically, basically, again, this goes back to that idea of kind of game theory and, and playing this out setting the board, setting the chess pieces, understanding how you're playing into other people. By, by laying that groundwork, it is sent, essentially incepted, right? If we think of the movie Inception, incepted him when I put the idea out there that I was leaving for this, this, and this reason, he was already like willing to listen to that and in agreement with it because I had set it up ahead of time. And so that's how you what would-
0: What kind of question though <laughs> would set that up?
1: So for instance, like when I, you just talked to him about like what he found about like most enjoyable about running his own firm, why he started this, what he looked for in people that he hired, right? Questions like this can, can start to get in. He would say questions, you know, answers like, Hey, I look for people who are like really driven and ambitious and like independent. Okay. Well, ambitious, driven and independent are three things that like I can then go back to him in the, the time when I'm telling him I'm leaving. Hey, like I'm leaving because like, you know, you even told me recently, like, you know, one of the reasons that, that I was appealing to you is because I'm, I'm driven, ambitious and independent. And like, in order to do that and really embrace that independence and ambition, like, I've got to go out and do my own thing. Like, I've got to be like you because that's what you did. That's why, why like we resonate so well. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh yeah, like I totally get that. You can't be that independent, ambitious person working underneath me. And by using his own words back to him, it had already like, he was already pre, predisposed to agreeing with me and taking it really well. So you just, you do some of those sort of things. Uh, it's, it's very much like a cross-examination when, when I would know where I wanted a witness to go, where I was trying to basically lead them <clears throat> without letting them see that we're going there. Which is always funny because sometimes they will see where you're going. They're like, I see where you're trying to take me. <laughs> and normally at that point it's too late because they're already stuck. And it's actually one of the things you have to realize as a person, like that's not a great way to live. So a lot of times I have to basically turn that side of me off because yeah. in relationships, it's very, very dangerous. And I found that early on where in some of my relationships, I was doing this sort of thing and it would make like my partner very, very angry. And I had to just stop and be like, Oh, okay. Like I can't be lawyer mode all the time. Like I need to just be like normal Robbie mode and, and just really kind of started embracing these different sides. So generally speaking, I do a lot more of just like the information gathering type thing than I do the, the tactical discussion idea but when ne- when needed i I certainly can can go into that pretty quickly
0: that's great that's thanks for sharing that um well Robbie, thank you so much for coming on the show and just uh you know spending the time to i't know talk on a, a wide variety of topics honestly I mean, we kind of just jumped around, but I appreciate your experience and thoughts and before we hang up here uh is there anything that you've learned along the way that you just want to uh, anything I haven't asked that you really just want to share with the audience or in part before we sign off?
2: The one thing that I'll, I'll leave with is
1: I think we all have this identity inside of us that a lot of times we don't realize is there. And it's kind of like a block of marble. And our, our job as people is to just kind of chip away until we see that like beautiful statue that's inside of us. Right. And it, it sounds kind of very like idealistic, but, but I really do believe that, that we all have that. And it's a little bit like the sense of in the end of Iron Man, when Tony Stark finally just embraces the fact that he is Iron Man, like that's his identity. And sometimes in today's world, we try to be an identity that we're not because we think that that's what the world wants to see. And the truth is just be authentic to yourself. Like that's the way to enjoy life. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone is supposed to like you. And that's perfectly fair. Like the people, if you are true to yourself and figure out what that beautiful sculpture is, you're going to attract the right people to you and life will be much more beautiful. So like as a creator, as a founder, whatever your role is, as a speaker, be you, you'll attract the right people. And don't worry, there's gonna be critics, but get in that arena, continue to take their abuse, continue to, to show up because the people who are yelling and screaming at you, they're not in the arena with you. They're afraid to get down there. So like you can be better than just by showing up day in and day out. Well said. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, Danny, so much. Appreciate it.